Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. With the 20th anniversary of 9-11 just behind us, uh, I wanted to bring on Rebecca Heinrichs um, here to High Noon to do a little bit of a retrospective on American power, both in the world and at home. Rebecca is the perfect person to discuss this with because she's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. She's an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics, which is a grad school for national affairs experts. And she specializes in national security, international relations, arms control, missile defense, um, and, and all subjects uh, of, of that nature. She served in that capacity in the U.S. House of Representatives, and she's uh, been been engaged on these issues for, for many years. So um, it's a pleasure to have you, Rebecca. Uh, welcome to High Noon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start off with the the anniversary that we just went through last weekend. I mean, it really felt, I think for a lot of people, I know for myself, um, it, it felt it was a really heavy, difficult mm-hmm. anniversary. And it, it's really difficult not to look at that anniversary as a depressing bookend on the last two decades, considering that the Taliban marked the occasion by formally instituting their government in Afghanistan after U.S. withdrawal, after 20 years um, of U.S. presence. Um, You know, what does that mean for American power? Uh, What does this moment mean for American power in the world? Uh, And what does it mean for us going forward? What are the challenges we're going to face in this new world where we are so uncertain of ourselves and our ability to project power? So if I could, I would, you know, just to zoom zoom out to kind of see where we are uh, relative to other powers. And this is something that the Trump administration did a great job at pushing this to the fore and forcing a lot of analysts and think tankers to grapple with this, which is that we are no longer the, um, I mean, we're not in a unipolar world anymore. We haven't been for some time, but but even just uh, the United States still has this, the strongest military and strongest economy, but but only by a hair relative to what, what China uh, can, can do to contest the United States. And, and so this, we inherited, our country inherited a much stronger, uh, America relative to any other power after the Cold War. And so it's really been a bipartisan squandering of that relative power since. So uh, that that's not to say that there's been good things that have happened along the way to keep Americans safe, but uh, our our focus almost solely on on the Middle East and these counterterrorism, efforts, uh, the nation building that all of us are all too painfully familiar with that failed in Afghanistan, that, that all of this uh, drained the United States. But it, it, that's not, that's not uh, the only thing that we should point to to blame. So you see some of these folks who are more in favor of U.S. disengagement broadly constantly point at the wars in the Middle East. But what they fail to point out, which I think is equally, if not more important, is that it really is uh, progressive ideas that are being implemented in the foreign policy establishment, idealism, naivety about how to actually carry out and use American power smartly to defend the American people and defend our our interests. And our interests are, I would say, making sure that the United States remains the preeminent power. That's that's how we can we can shore up our sovereignty. It enables us to not be under the thumb of the of the Chinese Communist Party and to move and act in the world on terms that are most favorable to us 
And those things we can debate. We can talk about what those are, what we should be doing in various countries, but you don't, you don't even have that option to do that if China becomes the world's strongest uh, military power and economy, which is what they're doggedly determined to do. Um, that's a long way of saying, so what do we do about Afghanistan at this point? I mean, I, I've been in favor over the last um, four or five years of drawing down in Afghanistan, meaning you know, do, going all the way down to a minimum force so that we're only doing what the military can do and can do well, which is kill terrorists and uh, support the Afghan uh, army, but don't do any of the other nation building stuff. Don't act like a mediator in between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Leave that that stuff alone. Kill kill terrorists, um, providing close air support, and and continue to have the Afghan army doing a lot of the ground operations, and then keep that Bagram air base. It's like a I forget the exact. It's like thirty square miles. The whole air force in uh, installation. It's just massive. It's massive, and it's right there, uh, uh, bordering China, and you had uh, NATO forces that could operate and cooperate with the United States too. So now we can we can shift our mission to having a China centric mission, keeping China out from accessing rare earth minerals, that kind of thing in Afghanistan, and also just just busting up these terrorism cells while we had sources and methods in the country. Um, of course, it's not what Joe Biden did. He went through with a uh, precipitous withdrawal, a really quick withdrawal when when we saw things were going very badly and that what we thought was going to happen wasn't happening. He was so ideologically rigid about getting out that he wouldn't adapt and change what, what he was doing. I think that ideological rigidity is the same kind of ideological rigidity that you had in the people who thought we could build this progressive liberal democracy with the pride flag flying and everything from our, from our embassy in, in Afghanistan. It's just for different ends. Um, you know, you, you, you have to have uh, dedication to principles and prioritization and then willingness to adapt when the facts change, which is which is not what the Biden administration has done. And then my last point I'd say before we move on, um, you know, you, you see a lot of Biden defenders say, look, he got out of Afghanistan so that he can focus on our primary threat, which is China. But we we keep hearing that. But again, this is still mostly rhetoric. I mean, it's mostly rhetoric about taking on China in this very, um, you know, uh, soft-toned way in which our Secretary of State communicates. It is. It is not. It has not been backed up by moving military forces into the Indo-Pacific region that we would need to to deter China. Um, it's taking the foot off the gas on going after Chinese spies in the United States that have infiltrated our higher education system. Um, and then, of course, you have all the domestic politics where this, you know, the Biden administration is just being extremely divisive domestically, which is directly incompatible with what we need to have a whole of society approach to deterring China and bolstering our own country um, to meet the threats that we have today. So I'm afraid that the Biden administration has really sort of embraced this managing decline rather than fighting for American preeminence, which is what the previous administration, to my mind, was determined to do. I mean, let's let's talk about the fact that there does seem to be a lot of, for the last 20 years, there seemed to be a lot of overlap between the experts and the people who were, were working in, with perhaps some exceptions under the Trump administration, because Donald Trump did come from the outside 
Um, uh, he, he wasn't necessary. Some of the people he hired were sort of typical Republican hires for every Republican administration, but a few of them were not. So it, it I think it, it probably, and you know more than I do, it probably uh, did result in a foreign policy that in some ways was different. Um, mm-hmm. At least Donald Trump rhetorically was different um, on foreign policy than previous Republican presidents. But but that aside, it really seems like for the last, since, since the end of the Cold War, really, um, American foreign policy hasn't really had hasn't had sort of a grand strategy. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we went into the Middle East in response to what happened 20 years ago on 9-11. And and initially that, you know, that seemed like um, a very obvious national interest to to defend Americans and to go kill the people who had struck our homeland in such a terrible way. But we've even seen that, obviously, over the last couple decades, the clarity there completely dissipate, you know, what should American strategic, you, you mentioned one, which is to keep our preeminence, but how should we do that going forward for a moment when we will get to the fact that we're domestically a mess? And I think there's yeah. no way to talk about foreign policy anymore without talking about our own confidence in ourselves as a people. But um, if if we pulled together, if, if uh, things turned around at home, um, you know, what kind of moves would you be looking for from an administration that was interested in rebuilding American dominance? Yeah, I, I would say um, it's a great question. A few things. One, for, first of all, I would say that the Trump administration actually was a serious break um, from from what we have seen over the last several decades. And, and, it, and it's really because, you know, I've I've never argued that Donald Trump was a grand strategist or he had this even this fully formed, developed view of, of, of America's role. In the world. Right. But the thing that Donald Trump um, had going for him that was a useful tool for breaking a lot of glass that we, that needed to be broken was um, he, he comes in, he, he approaches foreign policy with a Team USA jersey. And, and so, you know, the old arguments like, you know, Mr. President, you can't do that because it's going to upset our allies and partners. For instance, you know, think of like pulling out of the, the Paris Climate Accord or um, some of the best things he did, um, pulling out, just ending uh, this arms control treaty that we had with the Russians that the Russians have been cheating for years and years and years on. It's called the INF Treaty. I mean, that that treaty prevented the United States from building the range and kind ground launch uh, missiles that we would need to be able to hold the Chinese at risk um, if we're going to defend Taiwan, for instance, and defend Guam. Um, we weren't able to build those things because of this treaty that we had with the Russians. Well, the Russians have been cheating on it. So, you know, if you, you can imagine sort of this very conventional bipartisan, you know, Republicans and Democrats are both make this case, you know, sir, you can't pull out of this treaty right now until the Germans, you know, until the Germans want you to, and until the Europeans want you to. And and that was just sort of, you know, Donald Trump was like, doesn't make any sense to me. Why would we stay party to a treaty when the other guys are cheating on it and we need to build those systems? And I've heard some people say, oh, no, any Republican would have done that. But when you look at the whole menu of things that Trump took that approach with, what's in the interest of the United States? I'm tired of being taken for a sucker. We don't have time to just maintain the status quo. We need to be doing things to change. And so that was just one example. So he pulled out of that treaty. And actually, he just went to our allies and privately, something that I think um, was really good instead of some of Trump's more public kind of, you know, browbeating that he did of our allies. But he went privately and just told our NATO allies, we need to do this. We need to get out of this treaty. 
and, and, and let's get all on the same page. And so NATO actually came out in support of the Trump withdrawal, which was amazing. Um, but it had to do with pressure behind the scenes. So what I would love to see is more, you know, taking in inventory, our agreements and treaties. What are we doing that's old and dated for the sake of this international order that's actually harming American sovereignty and power? And, and then shore up our military in a way that matches up with our rhetoric that really the focus is the Pacific. We need to be a, a much more substantial Navy power than, than what we are. And so we need a larger Navy. We need the kinds of missiles deployed now to the region. We need to be pressuring our allies to contribute more to collective defense. That's something the Trump administration did. Biden came in saying, I'm going to treat our allies better. And what that has essentially meant is he took the gas, you know, took his foot off the gas on pressuring our allies to do more. But we need we need them to do more if the United States is going to be the one at the helm um, of of this, you know, of the West, really, of the free world. And it's even just from a strictly realist view, meaning a clear eyed assessment of the threats and in U.S. interests and a very intentional eschewing of this very idealistic liberal notion of sort of having this, you know, international world order and international government and and relying on international institutions. I'm saying we're still going to put American preeminence first. Our allies and partners have to understand that it's either going to be the United States that can that throws around more weight or it's going to be China. And that directly impacts them and they need to do more to help and make sure that it's the United States and not China. So I would love to see that. And I can go through the whole I mean, there's all kinds of examples domestically, um, shoring up our industrial policy to make sure that we're not reliant on China for producing the things that this country needs to survive and to thrive. Um, lots of things, but it's going to take, I mean, the, the team that we have in the government right now, I mean, I just think that they're just, they, they really are ideologically progressive. And so they really do believe that they can achieve, even if they agree that, that we need to focus on China, the way they're going about it is just not realistic and relies too much on just asking people to do things rather than using pressure and using um, the tools that we still have to, to get people to, to do what they need to do to help the United States deter China. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the depressing thing is I, I wonder um, a lot of countries after this Afghanistan pullout, not just the fact that we left, but the way in which we left yeah. um, the total incompetence on display at the top levels of American foreign policymaking and, and even military, um, obviously not talking about people in the field, commanders in the field um, who who did the best they could with right. the mission they were given, but on, on the highest levels of our military. I guess I'm wondering what a lot of countries, if, if you were a country, let's say, um, preparing for a bipolar world between and essentially a Cold War atmosphere mm -hmm. between the U.S. and China, it's no longer clear to me that the United States is the safe bet or ally that we were, let's say, um, or, or the at least even, even 15 years ago or 10 years ago, it seems like if you're a country who obviously doesn't like the way that, I mean, China is let is much, <laughs> is, is much less uh, fair than the United States and the way that it throws its influence around, they ask much more in terms of uh, getting domestic uh, concessions from countries to, to basically fall in line with the Chinese communist party propaganda. They do that even in the United States. Um, they try to anyway. 
Uh, but between the power that's probably quote unquote nicer, the United States, but now seems on in the decline. I mean, it's, yeah. I guess the depressing thing to me is it's no longer clear for me what the obvious call should be for a lot of other countries in the world. I mean, do you think that they're looking at, at it that way or am I being too depressed? Like, are there major American assets that I'm not, um, you know, not taking into account when I'm looking at sort of the psychology of this? No, I, I think that you've hit onto something that is with which I have been very frustrated because I still consider myself, if I had to choose, are you an idealist or a realist? I would say, well, I'm a realist, meaning that countries are going to act in what they perceive to their own interests and that we need to have a realistic understanding of what human beings and human government can achieve and that it's really the drivers in world affairs are countries. It's not going to be this multinational organization. It's not going to be multinational courts. It's going to be countries that are very different culturally, very different in the terms in, in the kinds of systems of government they have and how they have determined is best for their own citizens. Okay. But even within that school of thought, one of the things I've tried to convey to my friends who think, oh, just, you know, bare knuckle interests are going to are going to come into play. And so our allies are going to look at Afghanistan and think, okay, that was terrible, but bottom line, you know, we're still going to work with the U S to deter an act of aggression against, you know, democratic Taiwan. The reason I think that that is foolish is because we're, we're not human beings are not purely logical. We you know we're not, we're not a bunch of Vulcans, you know, we're people. And so there's a psychology involved here when you look at how the United States and frankly, just even Joe Biden himself and not taking a call from Boris Johnson for like 30 hours when he kept trying to get through to him when the when Afghanistan was just unraveling disastrously. When you when you see that happen. And by the way, we still have Canadian citizens. I know at least Canada. I'm sure we have other allies who still have citizens in Afghanistan, too, who are still trapped American citizens, civs, and then other religious vulnerable groups who we still have ties with that certainly would qualify for asylum and who would be, you know, worthy, worthy of it in a variety of other countries. You know, we, I mean, this was bad. This was really bad. And it definitely tarnishes the United States' reputation and the political capital that we have to go to these countries and then make these arguments that we are a reliable partner. We're here to cooperate with you. You know, we're we're not going to make rash decisions that endanger your own citizens. When things start to go south, we're willing to adapt to changing facts. I mean, all of those things are are hugely important to to make the argument that that we are going to lead the way forward to a um, a, a better a better you know reality for for the free world. So I. I, I mean, the UK rebuked the president of the parliament did. Um, you have other allies speaking out about what a disaster it was in other countries. And so, I mean, we I, I've had Democrats even admit to me privately. No, Rebecca, you're right. Where there's going to be an Afghanistan effect diplomatically. And, um, you know, my, my hope is that that we recover some of this by a different team of people. I mean, I don't I don't have a hope for this, for the Biden administration to be able to do it. Uh, Secretary Blinken is going to testify tomorrow, I think before the Senate. And he, he just had, I don't even know how I would advise him to explain this away. 
the, you know, President Biden was still defiant and defensive about the way he handled this. And our, I think our allies are, are justified in being very concerned about how the United States is going to lead and be a cooperative partner. That's not to say that there's not things that they need to be doing and can be doing. There, absolutely. But, but it does seem like this administration is unable to have a clear-eyed understanding of what needs to be done, and nor do we have a president who who has the the ability to to speak and act in a way that we need for this time in history. So we're not in a good situation. My my hope though is that the situation isn't dire. You know, like things are going to unravel further in the next three years that we can somehow skate by this in in such a way. Um, so that we can get a different administration that might have a more realistic view of what needs to happen and more tact and ability to cooperate and make these arguments to our allies and partners that what you just witnessed in Afghanistan, and we're going to continue to witness for, I think, years and years to come, um, is not the new mark of the United States and, and that we can do better than this. You know, you teach grad students, and I only took... Um a couple classes in poli sci before I switched my major. And, and I'm wondering how the next generation of foreign policy experts coming up because are, are thinking about these problems, because what we just talked about has an element of psychology in it, right? It has right. an element of ideology um, and understanding that people are coming. They're not necessarily always coming from some kind of like bloodless, rational calculation, um, but that was very much, at least in my, you know, sort of undergrad poli sci um, courses. One of the reasons I decided to switch out majors was because they didn't seem at that point that the thing that I was thinking about the most in foreign policy, to the extent that I was thinking about foreign policy, was obviously, um, you know, basically a post 9-11 world and, and our wars in the Middle East. And, and they seemed incapable of factoring in, for example, genuine religious fervor. Right. Into their calculations. And we saw that again in some of the reports after Afghanistan that some very high level folks in the State Department and in the military were like, we didn't realize they really, really meant it. Right. Um, like the inability to understand that there are factors in play in foreign policy that aren't just a calculation of numbers. I mean, do we have a core of young diplomats and people who are going to staff the State Department? Um that aren't, for example, fully bought into this progressive vision of international institutions being the most important, or who understand that most people have a unironic attachment um, and an unashamed attachment to their own country's self-interest, and they don't think about it in terms of this this kind of bloodless global thinking. I don't know. I, I'm not articulating right. myself particularly well, but are we producing people who can even play in the kind of world that you imagine um, or hope that we will be playing? Like, do they even understand the game? I guess is my question. So I, I would say, uh, yes, I would say one of, one of the things that I have been surprised by and why I like teaching grad students is my experience has been, um, you know, that grad, grad school can be where your, your, your thinking is like ruined. And so if I can get a hold of them and just talk to them about, nuclear deterrence and strategic stability and geopolitical um, interests and what that looks like and allies and partners. There, a lot of this stuff, if you, a, a lot of the progressive ideology is actually very counterintuitive. You really have to jump through all sorts of things to, to come to this position where you think like, 
the Taliban really cares about the LGBTQ agenda. I mean, for, for, you, for you to get to the point where you're like, oh, we should definitely shame them so that they are respectable international actors. I mean, most just normal people who have normal jobs and normal lives coming from normal America, they go to college, they go to grad school, can recognize that that's crazy. Now, assuming that these students don't get totally ruined in, in undergraduate, um, you know, you can, one of the things I start off doing the first couple classes is we spend a lot of time uh, just studying the lead up to the United States dropping the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the reason that I do that is because I want them to take a hard, close, detailed look at Imperial Japan at the time. What did their culture, what was their culture doing? What was it, how they were they behaving because of their, um, you know, almost religious fervor and dedication to the emperor? What, 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 you know, how did they think about warfare? How were they using their women and children? And, you, you know, we just, we just stare at that. We kind of get out of our current cultural context and, and the political issues we deal with today and kind of go back and look at that. And then you have students who were like, the, you know, even if they disagree on the decision ultimately drop the bombs, they can totally understand why we did it. Because you can understand that this is a country that had to a completely different culture, different understanding of warfare, what they were trying to do. Um, you know, all of these things that went into the way in which they were they were fighting a war with the United States, the number of casualties, the risk that they're willing to take, the pain that they're willing to take in continuing to fight. Um, and, and so, you know, reg regimes, countries, governments and regimes behave in the world uh, in a way that matches who they are as a people. And that applies to the United States. And so our challenge for Americans is also to make sure that we are not projecting on what we think other countries are going to do and how they're going to behave based on how we would or what we think is rational and makes sense. And, and so I do see a lot of grad students. I, 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 I have a lot of grad students who come from former Soviet countries and man, they get it. You know, you try to you explain this stuff to a, to a, you know, a, a Polish, um, you know, a Polish student, and it's like very obvious to them. And they almost, they burst out laughing a lot when we, when I read aloud articles by some more progressive think tankers on, on some of this stuff, because it's so obviously dumb and won't work when you're dealing with the Russian government. And so, you know, you, you do have, I think, you know, I do think that there is great opportunity as long as we have enough people who are willing to spend the time and investment in these younger younger generations of people who are going to be influencing U.S. policy. And then if there are nationals from these other countries going back and what they would expect and, you know, how they would talk to Americans in, in, in a situation in which they're dealing diplomatically with us. But, you know, that's why it's so important that you can't just divorce. You know, if the United States just start, start, starts to act like this, just utterly callous, I mean, this 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 notion that that Biden just thought, hey, we did pretty good. Only 13 Americans were in my kill box that I set up and died. I mean, you know, he almost has this like, I thought that was pretty good, all things considering. That is atrocious. It's atrocious. And it and it was a it was a disaster and a catastrophe of, of the US's own making. And so we have to be constantly looking and making sure that we as a nation are um one, that, that we are behaving as we ought, as the American character and how the United States, you know, should and ought to behave with other countries, both our adversaries and our allies and our dedication to protecting our own citizens. 
and doggedly doing what is necessary to protect our own citizens. Um, so yeah, I still, I still have hope, but it takes a lot of investment. It takes a lot of investment. And, um, and you know, my, my just hope constantly is that we are cultivating enough professors and other people and mentors to spend the time with these, you know, that the next generations, they can see that we need to have a clear eyed assessment of what it means to be American and then also how to interact in the world and, and deal with really bad guys who would love to, to harm Americans in the United States. And then also how to how to actually engender a desire among these other countries who are would, would be much more favorable to the United States still remaining at the helm and not turning it over to China. And, and frankly, their little brother, Russia, because Russia and China are increasingly cooperating militarily because they have a shared interest in weakening the, weakening the United States. You, you really hit, hit the nail or, or hit the problem on the head here, which is, I mean, you said we need a clear-eyed understanding of American national character. Mm -hmm. It's not clear to me at all that we do have a shared understanding of what it means to be American and therefore how America should use its power. Um, and perhaps we were always a bit of a reluctant empire, right? It, it does. It, right. I think we, we suffer a lot from this con contradiction of being a former colony that became a preeminent global superpower. Um, for example, I don't, you know, I think the British, even, even though they're in many ways to the left of us, they, uh, they still kind of understand how to administer empire. Um, yeah. They have a little bit less of, of um, it, that kind of progressivism has seeped a little bit less into their uh, understanding of dealing with other cultures, maybe because they did have this huge empire all over the world. And, and unlike the United States, they at one point were completely the opposite of reluctant in terms of imposing um, administration on other, other cultures. Um, so perhaps this is sort of inevitable for the United States that we, we have a, a contradictory feeling about being an empire at all, or we, many of us don't consider ourselves even an empire. Right. Um, but it does seem like our domestic crisis is now precluding our ability to, you know, to, to deal in the international or, or geopolitical world. Um, you know, given that that's the case, I mean, what, what can we hope for domestically? Because we don't want to make the same mistake that I think the left is making now, which is they, they just pretend that the half of the country that disagrees with them politically doesn't exist and they can either shut them up or, or um, they have no plan of how to go forward as a country um, living alongside, for example, 75 million Trump voters, right? Right. Um, I mean, no, I think that's a great win this battle for our national character at home, I guess, is the difficult question that I'm asking you. Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, you know, those who, who you know, the rising politicians and influencers, for lack of a better word, in, in policy, who do what you do and, and who are writers and who are out on TV, you know, making the argument for um, defending kind of the, the heartland and the working class Americans, you know, I would just warn people that you cannot abandon the foreign policy conversation. There is a weariness that I am sympathetic to. It says, you know, listen, I don't even trust our own FBI. I think that our own CDC has totally been hijacked by a left-wing ideology. Our public schools are rotten to the core. I mean, you, you, yes, yes, yes. I can 
embrace and under, I understand all of that, but we can't not afford to hold the line, or I would even just say shore up the line um, in foreign policy, because it's all happening at once. And you better believe as bad as the United States is at understanding, at understanding our enemies, our enemies are much better at understanding the United States. Um, and so the Chinese, the Russians, the, the Iranians, I mean, they're all looking to some degree to take advantage, to exploit this political turmoil that the United States is. Really, it's an identity crisis that our country is going through right now. And and I, I, I really do see, um, yeah, I mean, I do see that there, we've got a severe problem where we have to, we, we have to kind of retake what it means to be an American and what the, and how the government interacts with and treats and frankly respects the sovereign, which is the people. Um, and, and so we, we have to get through that, but that doesn't mean that we can retreat from the world stage. I mean, that's just going to accelerate our doom. So that I, I cannot emphasize that enough. I'm very sympathetic with a lot of the more eloquent, you know, populist voices. But what what tends to happen is those folks who are focused on the domestic part then say, and we don't need NATO anymore. And we don't need to be focused on what's going on with Taiwan to forget Taiwan. You know, it, that that's a very, very fast accelerated way for American decline. The United States and the American way of life will not be preserved if the United States is under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party. And, and so we, we, have to, we have to be able to walk and chew gum, fight these fights domestically with these uh, government institutions that frankly need to be just, you know, <laughs> walked away from and reestablished in some other way. Um, but we, but we, but we need a, we need a bunch of, of politicians and, and everyday Americans at the local levels of government getting involved and, and doing what needs to be done to, to protect American families, which of course, you know, first things first, that's why we care about American power. It's why we care about American military power and American economic power and our own sovereignty is because we want to preserve the American way of life. And so you, you have to be able to understand both things and then articulate both things. And um, we've got a big challenge ahead of us. Um, I, you know, I'm, it can be a, something we can say, well, we, we just have to do all of these things and it, it's going to be incredibly difficult. But I, I'm not one of these people who have given up hope because, uh, you know, decline is always going to be the result of what the American people accept and what they simply refuse to accept. And, and I've been actually encouraged, at least. I mean, I the Afghanistan disaster has been just horribly deflating for me. But what has been encouraging is you have seen, I think, some of those individuals who have been more sympathetic to American retreat from the world stage has major buyer's remorse for jumping on that bandwagon. And they understand that even if we can change, adapt, figure out um, how we can narrow our emissions, reduce what we're doing, lean more on our allies and partners, that, that um, American leadership is still indispensable. And it still matters how we go about doing this. And, and so it's my hope that we can figure out this prudent way forward where we care about the domestic issues. And frankly, think tankers, you know, national security people hate getting involved in the culture wars. They hate it. But I always remind them it directly impacts. You know, we need to be able to say, is the American regime or the American government, if you're uncomfortable with the word regime, if the, is the American uh, government that you understand and that you want to protect, it, does it make sense that that 
for your understanding of what we're trying to do here, that we are putting the pride flag on U.S. embassies in Muslim countries and in European countries, frankly, the Vatican, um, against the beliefs and values of people. You know, it's antagonistic. Does that is that is that the same thing as representing the American flag, the LGBTQ flag? I would argue it's not. That represents a faction of the Democratic Party. It doesn't represent what the United States is. Of course, Americans want all individuals in these countries to be treated equally and with respect and have due process. Nobody supports how the Iranian regime treats homosexuals in, in Iran. That's not the same thing as the LGBTQ flag, which represents this advocacy and glorifying and celebrating um, a, a, a this, this sort of woke um, view of, of, of humanity. And, and so we have to have those hard conversations and we need to understand what it is we're trying to do um, that, that works and that actually puts forward our own national interests. And so these are just, you know, when, when our chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff is defending white fragility, you know, the critical race theory book that in our military academies, we are, we are in a bad place because that, that is going to be horribly divisive to our military, but not just divisive and bad. It confuses them about what it means to be an American. And, and, and frankly, it wastes time on when they should be focusing on how do we become the most lethal, effective, unified fighting force to defend the American people. And so we, we cannot just keep sticking our head in the sand because we just want to focus on national security. And that applies to the people who just want to focus on domestic policy. You're going to have to care about the national security foreign policy piece. I guess I have to ask the unpleasant question. What if it is who we are, right? Um, what if the power that America is still able to project, not just militarily, but culturally around the world is, I mean, completely controlled by our institutions or cultural institutions in the United States that have been completely taken over by the let's call them i always I, there's no real good word for them and i really right. hate the word wokes but i keep using it on this podcast because yeah. i really i don't have a better word to describe um you know this ideology but what if the apparatus of american empire is functionally controlled by the woke right because that's certainly how some of our allies are starting to feel i mean in france um in in you mentioned poland in in um you know increasingly American influence is synonymous with the pride flag, right? And, and I don't want to narrowly focus on LGBT right, issues. No. That's actually much broader than that, but it, it, it is a representative. Um, but increasingly, like, the more American influence is in a country, the more that's synonymous with wokeism. Right. No. I mean, I would argue that I think this point deserves some clarification too. The American flag should, if you understand it properly, represent due process, equal opportunity under the law, the dignity of the human being. So you don't need this add on pride flag to represent those things. So if what you care about is the dignity and the treat, you know, the dignity and of, of all individuals in, in Iran from, you know, Iran, they, they execute gays. We, we, we don't know. We don't. We think that's bad. That is a bad thing. It's inconsistent with what we want the Iranian regime to do. But, but the American flag represents that. 
And it's because, but so whenever you see this new ideological push, they actually think the United States flag does not represent that anymore, that they need a new flag, which is why you're even seeing some of these crazy, you know, critical theory advocates, advocates, um, public educators, you know, on, on um, these TikTok videos, teaching elementary school kids that really, you know, they're pledging allegiance to the LGBTQ flag rather than the American flag. It actually is a takeover of the American regime, this new, this new ideal that's just represented by the pride flag. So you're right to point out it's much larger than just um, how do you treat gay people in your country? It's a, it's, that flag has become representative, which is why you saw BLM um, had strong statements about LGBTQ um, issues uh, on their website, I think, before that was taken down. And so it really is this, um, it's identity politics, uh, breaking people up into these um, just groups of people but and ranking. So they're born into, you know, your, the American experiment was about how it doesn't matter what you're born into, that you have the ability to, to govern yourself and to make what you will out of your life. Um, and, and the, this new identity politics is saying, actually, you're born almost I'm like, like into this caste system. If you're a white male, you're here. If you're a white woman, you're here. If you're a black woman, you're here. If you're a trans black woman, you're like at the very top. Um, and it breaks people up into this, into all of these groups. It's, it's in, it's directly in contradiction to what the American experiment is and is supposed to be. Um, so I think we have to grapple with it. This is so the question of our time for those for conservatives, intellectual conservatives. I think that the debate is how how far gone are we to your question? How far gone are we? You know, do we balkanize and just everybody moved? I, I jokingly call them West Berlin, you know, Florida, Texas and Tennessee and these other states. But, you know, do we do we all do we do that? Do we just splinter off that way and then just try to govern ourselves basically in these separate countries where we just happily, you know, um, you know, share the kids on the weekends, but we're divorced um, or, or, you know, or do we press into this and say, absolutely not. I am not going to surrender this stuff. I'm going to, we need it. We need a government that's going to go in there, get rid of these uh, institutions that need to be reformed. Stop giving, stop giving the teachers unions, all of this, you know, influence over the, our organizations. I mean, when you saw a lot of the progress that the Trump administration was able to get done, I'm actually hopeful that we still have a lot of chance here um, to be able to make some reforms, get rid of some of these institutions and have these fights, do some defunding. But it's taking some time for the members who are sympathetic to fixing things to understand that they need to stop being afraid of their shadow. They need to, they need to start playing as the, like the same kind of hardball that the left has been willing to do you know, people, um, conservatives need to be willing to do the same thing. And it's, it's against the conservative sort of constitutional uh, small C inclination because conservatives tend to be, we're trying to, we don't like a lot of change, but now we need change. We need major change. And so now we, we need to, we need to figure out how to push together in, in ways that can actually reform these, these institutions or get rid of them all together and get people in places of power and influence to take over these. But, you know, I mean, your, your point is, is the one that everybody should be grappling with. You know, what, what does the United States actually represent this new identity politics, really civil religion? It's been replaced by Judeo-Christian understanding of the good and the right and how people ought to behave, what a virtuous human being is that we're supposed to be using our liberty for the pursuit of the good that actually exists.
It's not just, you know, this, this self-actualization mission um, in which we turn against each other because we all have different ideas about what that is. No, there is a truth that exists apart from us and that we need to be pursuing the good. Um, we, we're, we, have to, we have to fight those who are actually, you know, on a, on a determined mission to, to change what it means to be an American. So um, like you pointed out, I mean, even our allies are like over it. I mean, the French are like, I don't want to have anything to do with this woke stuff. I mean, it's divisive. I mean, why, why are people, why are there African-Americans in Europe um, it, with their, with white citizens marching for BLM in their own countries during the George Floyd riots in the United States? I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's like, what, what, what is happening there? And it's really the importation of this new ideology that's counter um, uh what's in the interest of these countries that that want to have these peaceful, tranquil lives. And so you have the French pushing back. Um, it, obviously, Poland, I mean, Joe Biden put Poland in the same category as authoritarian countries um, because they're still a Catholic nation. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, it's crazy. We, we, we need Poland to be able to, to deter and, and weaken Russia. And, and there's certainly not a country that should be in our sights for one that we should be focused on um, changing or certainly not offending and insulting. So um, I'm so hopeful. I'm an American, so I always have that um, optimism. Realistic optimism is what I was how I define it. But um, a, a lot of work to be done, and a lot of people I respect very, very much who have a different view than I do, and they just think, you know, it's time. It's time to sort of uh, separate geographically in the United States and do the best we can with Republican conservative governments in in some of these other you know southern states well uh i'm in new york city so i haven't i haven't uh balkanized <laughs> myself ideologically yet um but but i can't let you go without um asking you about a piece that you wrote for the american mind so i usually hate talking about uh things in this way but but in your case it's it's really true you are for example a woman in a field you know Missile control treaties is is uh, I'm, my guess is that most of your peers and your colleagues are male. Um, that you do work in a male dominated space, as we're always hearing from the left and feminists. Um, and so you you've had the opportunity as a teacher for grad students to come to you and ask you about their future careers, including your female grad students. And some of them have asked you how you've balanced your life as a mother of five, I believe, right? No, that's right. I know people are like, did I lose track? Have you had any babies since the last time I checked in? No, <laughs> um, and and you wrote in, in the American mind about a very um, unusual piece of advice in our, mm -hmm. our current culture that you you gave them. And I was wondering if, if you might want to speak about that advice uh, to, to an audience yeah. who might not have the opportunity to be your grad student. Right. Well, I, I actually see it as related to everything we just talked about. You know, one of the, the I, I will often go in and have the opportunity to speak to a batch of interns who have come into the Washington, D.C. area to spend a summer doing work. And, you know, I give my briefing on America's role in the world and what it what it takes to shore up our military strength. And then somebody, some brave student will ask a question related to what I just said, and then somebody else will raise her hand and say, I really actually want to know how you have five children. You know, like that's actually what I'm most, and then the whole rest of the conversation is, is about this subject. So what I tell people, because uh, women, I mean, I deal, I talk to women of all sort of political stripes who still want to talk to me about this. And what they, what I have found in my experience is 
I would say most of them want to have children. They want to be a mother. They want to have children. But the conventional wisdom that they have been given is that you want to get your career started first. And then once you are established and you're more successful and you're more financially stable, then you can think about getting married. Or if you are married, you know, then you can think about having kids and you do all the traveling and everything you want to do first. I, I don't give that advice. I say having children requires an enormous amount of time and energy. And there is there are biological limits. And if you are married to someone, you know, if you if you find the man that you want to marry, you should marry him and then you should have children and you should not put off having children because all of it's hard. All of it takes an enormous amount of energy. And so you just kind of have to throw your hat over the wall and then go after it. And uh, you won't you won't regret it. And, and then what I tell them is and then work as it fits with your family. So you want to prioritize that. The reason that I say that it has to do with everything I just said is because this gets back to the question about what, what is the purpose of government and what is the purpose of our national security? Is it so that we can just have a bunch of cheap goods at Walmart and every American is part of a cog where we're all just trying to monetize our talents to the maximum ability? And that, that was this idea. This is what, you know, this is what I attribute to this idea of the Clinton administration thinking that we could just, as long as China was brought into the WTO, we would we would all get along because everybody would just maximize this idea of, you know, consumerism and that consumerism would win the day. And then we, we would, all these other differences would sort of just dissipate and go away. And then you really had the follow-on administrations that, that sort of took, understood this. And so you have this, I think, a wrong view of capitalism. Capitalism, like anything else, is great. It is good. But how? But for what purpose? And it's so that the American family can thrive and, um, and that, you know, that we can pursue happiness. And what is that happiness? It's not necessarily going to be monetizing yourself to your maximum ability, but maybe it's just it's making enough and doing enough so that you can provide for your family and have a great life and contribute to society in a positive way. And, and so I think we really do have to reevaluate how we how we talk about these things. I mean, one of the things I was trying to punch back on in that American Mind piece, too, is, you know, Joe Biden was like, you know, after this pandemic, what we have to do is we have to have nationalized preschool where we pay so that every w- woman can get back into the workforce. Well, the last Pew research study shows that women still more than men would prefer to have a flexible job or a part time job or no job while their children are very young. Studies show again and again that children do better when they're primarily around their mother, especially when they're under five years old, under four years old. Um, So these are just natural limitations that exist, uh, kind of going back to this idea of having a clear-eyed understanding of human beings and and the way way we are. And and there are some things that are fixed. It's not just this sort of, you know, uh, we are who we who we think we are. It's, it's just not, it's just not true. Um, there's a book, The Rise of the Modern Self. Uh, you got to remind me who the, the author is there. I, I cannot commend this book enough that explains a lot of this new um, woke ideology and where it comes from. But, uh, but my, my piece was sort of pushing back on this and saying, you know, look, we, we, we need to start from what, what are we doing for the American family and how are we talking to young women and young men about, 
you know, where their, their, where their happiness might, might come from. And it might, it's not, it is not necessarily. In fact, I would say for most women, it is not going to be um, uh, primarily just going out there and spending 50 hours and 60 hours and 80 hours in some cases in the office just trying to get that promotion and and trying to make sure that they're, you know, pushing papers enough so that they can make more money at the end of the year. You know, it is, it's, so you have to prioritize the most important things and, and then you just take, take time as it comes and do the best with it and, and make good decisions that prioritizing your family and you're, you're not going to regret it. Doesn't mean there aren't trade-offs. There's things that I've not done in my career but um, but I'm thrilled that I, that I have these five great kids and um, and it's a privilege to be their mother. And, and so I think, you know, we, we need to be bolder as professional women who can tell them that, tell young women that and, and that their life is, is not going to be less fulfilling um, because they've decided to prioritize motherhood over maximizing their their professional potential. So basically, capitalism is great. But money can't buy you love. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Which, I thought they knew that back in the 60s. But anyway, um, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. It was a, a real pleasure to have you on here to discuss not only the future of America in the world, but the future of America at home and the future of America's homes. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button, leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.